1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for
0: those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: That's a big thing, to know that you are not your thoughts and to, hey, demystified, no wonder I freak out every day. Look at the dialogue that's going on in my fucking head. Like, that's
2: incredible. That's Australian musician
1: guitar player
2: and rather interesting human being, Nathan Cavalieri. And this is episode 189 of the Osher Podcast. Hi, I'm Osher Ginsburg, and this is the Osher Ginsburg Podcast. Welcome to the show. This is episode 189, and it is with Nathan Cavalieri, who you can find on Instagram. Nathan underscore C-A-V-A-L-E-R-I. More about Nathan in a moment. A big thanks to everybody that sent messages of support in over the past few weeks. Uh, you can always get me on email. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Some great Podsy pics, hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E, pictures coming through. That's a photo of what you're looking at when you listen to this. Um, Got some great ones, Uh, people waiting in line for Wimbledon. That was exciting. People stretching after a swim, cleaning after twin four-year-olds, working at a glaziers factory, some great pictures. It's always fascinating to see what you're doing when you're listening to this. I mean, I'm in my house when I do them. I'd love to see where you are when you hear them. Uh, you can just tag me on Instagram or Snapchat, or you can just email me the pictures. Uh, this show today is brought to you by the fantastic human beings that support the show on Patreon at patreon.com/slash-osher slash osher, O-S-H-E-R. If you've been listening for a while now, or if the show is new to you, thank you for your support. Thank you so, so much. If you decide to, it's only, it's up to you, but if you decide to, if you want to kick in some cash, $5 a month towards this show will get you exclusive episodes. Uh, there are other support levels which include Skype calls, et cetera. But uh, these shows are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. And they, the support that you give me helps me pay Andy, who's my producer, and pays Haley, my production coordinator. And between the th- two of them, they've made the last three weeks possible. So I've got to say a, a big thank you Thank you very much for the leeway you've been giving me over the past three weeks. Uh, Because they've been compilation shows, they've been best-of shows because there's been a lot going on. And I told you last week I'd tell you what's been going on. So here's what's been going on. Um, If you've been listening, I've been doing my podcast intros from the front seat of rental cars. um, As I drive under tunnels in Brisbane, racing back to get planes, Um, I haven't had any new interviews to publish. And I've been leaning heavily on Andy to make the fill-in shows happen um, because there was more important stuff going on. Um, Around Easter this year, my mum had started to get quite sick. She uh, had, had chemo. She had gone into partial remission and she lost her remission. So we moved her out of her apartment and into a nursing home, and we all took as many chances as we could to be with her. She did start to decline fairly rapidly, so I was flying up to Brisbane and back every day when I could. And I do have to thank everyone who I work with, um, both at, um, The Bachelor at Warner Brothers at Channel 10 and the people at Southern Cross Osterio at Hit 105 for being so very flexible so I could spend as much time as possible with her and my brothers. About a week ago, um, my mum passed away. We were all there with her. She was held by all four of her sons when she went and thankfully it was very peaceful for her. She was an incredible woman who I've talked about on this show many, many times. She is a, was a World War II refugee from Lithuania who fled the Russian army with her family. She was just a kid. And even though she was just a kid, they traveled thousands of kilometers on foot through Europe and ended up in a refugee camp in Germany uh, throughout the end of the war. They lived there in that refugee camp until as a family they managed to come to Australia in 1949 and made a new life like so many people did. Um, They made a new life in Australia in Adelaide. She was a fiercely strong and independent woman with a brain the size of a planet, smarter than any human that I've ever known. She was an incredibly clever doctor and so very dedicated to working ceaselessly to give her kids... What she thought was the most valuable thing they could have, which was education. To give you an example of the kind of woman that my mum was, uh, at the funeral last Friday, one of her former patients, and Mum was a doctor her entire life, and you know, from from her twenties, so she'd had many patients over the years, hundreds if not thousands, probably thousands. One of her former patients, I'll call her Fiona. I don't believe that's her first her her real name. Uh, Fiona had come to pay her respects and I'd never met this woman before in my life, but she came to me after the funeral and she said that, um, Fiona said that she'd been facing surgery and was afraid to go under anaesthetic. Now, my mum used to be an anaesthetist. She assured her it was going to be okay, but Fiona was still apprehensive. And so mum said, look, don't worry, I'll go with you. Fiona thought nothing of it until surgery day when she's at the Royal Brisbane Hospital and she's being prepped for the theatre. And there's my mum, Dr. Ruth Gensberg, in full theatre scrubs, ready to go, with the little booties on and the hat and everything, saying, let's go, let's do this. Now, the surgeon, of course, had no idea this was going to happen, and the surgeon got into a tiff and started putting up quite a fight, saying mum couldn't go in, the theatre had enough people in it, and, you know, GPs don't get to go in with patients. But my mum had this stubbornness about her that was absolutely unshakable. She simply would not take no for an answer. It just did not occur to her that the possibility of her not going in was a reality. She, as far as she's concerned, she's going in that's the end of it. And eventually the surgeon saw this and went, well, I guess, it's, I guess you're coming in. And mum went into the room with Fiona and held her hand throughout the entire operation. Now, I'd never heard this story before, but it's not an isolated incident. But bear in mind what this what this means. Now, Mum worked at a bulk bill clinic at the time. There's a, There was absolutely no financial reason whatsoever for her to do such a thing, to take time out of her day to go and do this. She just had such a strong sense of justice and doing the right thing by people. She just went ahead and did it. And she didn't want to, she just possibly wouldn't have even entertained a world where it wouldn't happen. Because for her, this was the only right thing that could happen. And mum would do stuff like this all the time, not just for us boys, but as Fiona demonstrated for her patients. And that is the kind of woman and that was the kind of doctor that my mum was. Now, I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, I'm okay. See, the thing, about, the thing about terminal cancer is that you kind of get a chance to do a lot of the processing and feel a lot of the grief before everything happens, because it is an inevitability uh, of consequence. You understand that, oh, well, this is going to happen. And I still have, I still want to think about it. I still have a lot of sadness inside me. Um, but I know it will come out sooner or later. I guess just you not know, right now, I'm just, I'm just kind of processing it, processing things as they come up, and I'm grateful that I'm not overwhelmed by the enormity of everything happening at once. Um, I can't imagine what it's like to. You know, say goodbye to someone you love on their way to work, and they just never come home, and they, you know, they've been in a car crash or something. I can't imagine what that's like, having had months, if not years, to get used to the idea. Has actually been okay. Um. At the moment, I guess the thing that I'm saddest about is that I'll never have a chance to speak with her again. She, I really just really enjoyed talking with her. She was a very, very clever woman, and insatiably curious. Um, I guess that's the thing that, you know, makes me the saddest when I think about it. But it's a thing that we're all going to go through. You, me, everyone. Death's a part of life, but we tend not to speak about it. But I feel that we should speak about it because it's going to happen to every single one of us every, like like the flaming lips told us everyone you know someday will die and i'm just i'm just so lucky that my wife audrey was there for me i leaned on uh, i leaned on audrey quite hard in the last few weeks and i wouldn't have been able to do any of it all the stuff that you need to do there's a lot of admin and shit like that that does go on um now I you know, I wouldn't be able to do any anything that needed to get done without Audrey in my life and most definitely my brothers and my brothers' various wives and husbands were just amazingly powerful through all of this. just so, so, so good and so much support there and we all we all did it together. If if that if there is anything positive to come out of this, it would be that I, I'm closer to my wife than I've been before. I feel closer to her than I've been before, and I'm, I'm even, I'm even closer to my brothers, all three of them, than I've been before, and that's a, that's a nice thing. But that's what's going on. So thank you for the leeway you've given me. I'm very grateful now to be back at work, working with great people. It's a joy to find. It's a joy to work every day and it's a joy to find a reason to be excited about work every day. Even on the days I don't feel excited, I keep thinking about stuff until I think of something. Oh, you know what? It's gonna be really good to do this for that person today. And I just kinda of have to think about that stuff and then oh, I couldn't I'd go out and get out of bed and go for it. Um but Yeah, thanks for the last few weeks. Thanks for giving me that, that space of the last few weeks. Um But yeah, so you know, I guess, you know, we just keep going from here. This is what we do. This is what we do as people. We just go, okay, that happened. What do we do now? And what we do now is we we keep going with the show. And I'm I'm grateful to to that it's this show because it's a it's a it's a great show today. Let me tell you about my guest this week. Nathan Cavalieri is an Australian musician. Who you can follow online. He's on Instagram at Nathan underscore C-A-V-A-L-E-R-I. Or oh, he's actually got a, a quite a quite a profound blog at com. Nathan first came to the attention of Australia when he was still just a kid. He'd been he'd been diagnosed with leukemia as a child, and the Starlight Foundation, like the Make a Wish Foundation, the Starlight Foundation Foundation sent him over to the UK to jam with the lead guitar player of the biggest band in the world at the time, Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits, because Nathan is a prodigious guitar player. Uh, even as a little kid, he he couldn't put the guitar down. But the footage of him and Mark Knopfler playing guitar together quickly captured the hearts of Australians, and soon enough, Nathan, this incredibly talent, talented, good-looking, charismatic kid, was on stage with some of the most notable musicians, the most recognizable musicians in the world. Like in Australia, he he went on tour with a guy called Jimmy Barnes, who's like the Australian Bruce Springsteen, I guess. Uh, he, he's on stage with Booker T and the MGs. He's on stage with B.B. King. He's on stage with Michael Jackson. Nathan was an absolute superstar. He was on TV all the time. He was a household name. But what happened next is where the real story starts. And as Nathan explains in his blog, Uh, which I told you about before, com. He did go through some dark times. And today he does share some of those dark times with me. And I really can't thank Nathan enough for this because I always, in my experience, it's always been a great gift when someone opens up about their struggle because it can help those who are currently struggling understand that they're not alone. And it's the the feeling of, of, of isolation that I feel for me in my experience was the worst and i'm just really grateful that nathan shared this story with me because uh, i really think a lot of people can get a lot out of it before we go any further there's a there's some pretty heavy stuff we've already talked about some heavy stuff there's some heavy stuff coming if you you know if this resonates with you or if you feel unstable or if you feel like a bit wobbly at any point don't hesitate to give, in Australia, give Lifeline a call, uh, 13 11 14, just give them a call, have a chat, take five minutes, It will make you feel better. Okay. So put the kettle on. Let's do this. This is an afternoon chat with the wonderful human, very handsome, uh, incredibly talented guitar player and fellow Cavoodle owner, Nathan Cavalieri. Mm. Thanks for coming over, Nathan. No worries, mate. Yeah. Great. I'm grateful good. you to be here. Yeah,
1: good to be face-to-face. This is good. I know. Here,
2: we're here in, in yeah. beautiful in Bronte in the, the eastern part of, of Sydney, Australia, um, yeah. which is a long way uh, from uh, where I originally lived. Are you from Sydney?
1: Yeah, yeah. Grew up in Camden, out right. south-west Sydney.
2: All right. So, yeah. which is, it's southwest Sydney, but it's an hour and a bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. An, yeah, that's right. An hour and a bit. So, where, where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in, well, most of it in Brisbane.
1: Ah, uh, right. I was yeah. born
2: overseas. Yeah. I was born to immigrant parents over sure. there and then came here when I was a baby. So you always yeah.
1: live near the beach?
2: No, no. I grew up in Brisbane.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So,
2: you know, I grew up in the, the the foothills of Mount Coother. Yeah, right. Of Brisbane.
1: Right. Yeah. Oh, man, once I, like when I moved to Coogee because that was the first place I lived in um, after Camden, it's like I'd, I have to be near the water. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Right. I'll move further south as long as I'm near the water. Like,
2: There's you know. quite something special about living in a country like ours where it's possible. Yeah,
1: yeah, true. It's, and it's yeah. still
2: in, in, you know, you do have to make a decision about how close you want to be to amenities and things, but you can, most people can't afford to live yeah. next to a beach in some part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Like even if you've got to go like up to Townsville no, or something. I know,
1: but, you know, and also like I, I hear people complain about like how, you know, you can't afford to live within 20 minutes of the city. I mean that's that's a that's pretty that's a luxury, yeah. I reckon to be within twenty minutes of of a city. Like, yeah. it's I grew up like over an hour away, and you go to most you know cities around the world, and and um you know, yeah, to find land within twenty minutes of a city, it's pretty special. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. But, but you know, that's we're a, a relatively young yeah. country still so, when it comes to you know releasing land for development. But we didn't come here to talk about real estate. No, we? no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, great, I'm, I'm grateful you're here because your name is a name that when I told people I was interviewing you, your name is a, a very familiar name. A lot of people, they remember you. They know who you are. Um, there, were, you know, there was time when you couldn't turn on the telly and you weren't there. Yeah. Like nearly every night of the week. It's another world. Yeah. It feels like another world when that was going down. Yeah. You were this, this dream kid that just showed up, <laughs> you know, slinging half four times bigger than he
1: was. Yeah, totally. Oh, it's, it's still pretty big. I haven't, I haven't grown that much. It's kind of like my Cavoodle. I was hoping it was going to grow a little more, but huh? yeah, we have. Uh, we've got to get our caboodles
2: around for playdate. Yeah, Frank is busily eating his breakfast over there. He'll get chowing down. Yeah, he'll get cranky soon. Yeah, he goes on the hunt for the last biscuit. Yeah, and he'll he'll turn the kitchen upside down looking for it. <laughs> but I mean, you know, for folks who who may not be too familiar with the story, like how how early was music a thing
1: for you? Were your parents particularly musical? My dad played guitar as a hobby and, um, you know, just sort of had the garage band thing going on. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think some of my, my first memories are holding a ukulele like when I was three years old and just playing in time. And, and then, um, yeah, I just... I think that that's probably the most natural part of the whole thing was just being like sort of gravitating towards the guitar. That was definitely in natural as far as um skill, that was a lot of people say it, but it's definitely not natural. It was something that I've, you know, um worked really hard at. Um well, that's what my dad said anyway. And I can I can, you know, retrospectively I can see that. You know, it's just lots of practice and it's because I had, you know, the passion for it. So. Yeah.
2: So there was a, a ukulele right just lying around the house and you, weren't, yeah. and you weren't just being a kid going blang blang blang. No,
1: no, not at all. And as soon as I could, uh, I just pushed and pushed for a real guitar. Yeah. And then I got one. I probably would have been about, like I said, a three-quarter size acoustic. Yeah. Probably would have been about five.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And then I just moved my fingers up and down the board trying to sort of work out and you know, play along with, with some of my favorite tunes. and. Uh-huh. Yeah.
2: But I'm guessing there's a difference between I've got uh, two of my nephews, um, they're one of them uh, can, you know, they've got a piano at their house, he can play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star mm. with one hand and the other one who's seven has figured out that once I was seven years old, that song. Oh, yeah. He's figured it out, left-hand chords, right-hand oh, melody. Really? Wow, yeah. By ear. Yeah, yeah. From the radio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so were you that kind of kid? Were you the kind of kid that Definitely was able by to? Ear. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I didn't, that's, well, that's, I
1: mean, I can't even really, I can't really read. I can read tablature. Mm. Um, don't put manuscript in front of me. Right. Um, I, I, I suppose, I probably learnt backwards. So it was right. all from ear first, and then, and then sort of worked out a little bit more of the theory to back up what I was doing mm. much later in life. But I don't know whether um, it's not like I just sit in front of the, you know, Johnny Diesel and the injectors and and within a couple of listens, worked it out. I was just always in my bedroom listening, mm. moving my fingers. just, uh, uh, you know, I suppose maybe there's a little bit of a, a natural thing going on, but time, you yeah. know, when you spend that much time with something, it's, you know, for a lot of people it's, gonna, it's just going to click.
2: Well, that, and, that, and yeah. that's, that's the interesting thing is that there has to be that, there's got to be that launch pad of, or I can I can do this, yeah. and and oh, I'm interested in it, so yeah. I'm going to keep doing it rather than, I don't know, go and play, yeah. with, play with my iPhone or. That's or, right,
1: or, and I think um, when you've, I, I think I had the right amount of discipline and uh, and um, encourage encouragement around me, yeah, because my dad saw that I I really, you know, loved it. Mm. You know, posters up on my walls of Mark Knopfler and and Diesel and uh-huh. and. Um, and he saw that there was something there that he wanted to encourage uh-huh. and I think like with anything, if you've got the right balance of, of um, discipline to sort of you know, um, uh, carve it all out and, um, and then the encouragement, which I got a lot of um, back then because I was so young, mm. then, yeah, it's, it builds up momentum.
2: And mm-hmm. at what point did you, because, you know, we have this, you know, this projection bias that everybody's life is like our life. How, when we're kids, certainly yeah. you think everybody's life is, is the same. Yeah, uh, yeah. How long until you realized that you were of a different ability to other kids that were playing music around you?
1: Um, oh, Pretty early on because the attention, particularly media attention, um, I was very young. Like I was seven when all that kicked in. Why? What was the first thing? How did people find you? uh actually it was probably from um my trip to meet Martin Offler
2: when i was you had a trip to meet mark knoffler the guitar player from dire straits now how did that come about and why why was that a thing
1: that came about from through the starlight foundation because i i had leukemia when i was six and um and that was my wish and yeah so they flew me over to london and had a got got to sort of jam with him at air studios and um uh the today program i believe um for memory uh covered it and then from there right it was hey hey and then it was midday show right. and it just this domino effect well let's just let's
2: just rewind a little bit yeah yeah getting leukemia when you're a kid's a big deal yeah yeah when were you diagnosed
1: um i was 6 and um obviously before yeah before uh music and well music was in my life and i think i think having leukemia was what took that bond like cemented that bond with my music even more mm. like before there was a tension or anything like that yeah. because it was it was what i was focused on it's what made me feel good when i was in pain and and um and that's just really what my mind was focused on all the time was music and 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 then playing with my friends and a pretty important part uh, when it comes to healing, I think, yeah. and um, keeping that part of your mind you know, How long was your healthy.
0: treatment?
1: Oh. Um, well, I don't think uh, it's funny. You know, I spent years and years blocking um, this out, not purposely, but just so now the details are a little hazy. But I believe that I was in – I got the all clear when I was 11, I think. Right. And then remission. I think the whole the, the the treatment was two two years. I can see my mum shaking her head at the moment. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no, 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 darling. Right. Um, but it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty full on. Yeah. Like I've I'm probably only re- realizing over the last sort of five years that there's probably a little bit of trauma there that I carry with me um, subconsciously from some of the operations. But uh, for the yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, funny enough, I was touring and doing all all that stuff um, while I was getting treatment. Like, obviously, not the first first year, because and then the Starlight Foundation. But the I was still going in for lumber punches and all sorts of stuff right. while I was in between tours and and um, uh, TV appearances. We <laughs> driving on the way to the midday show and we have to pull over three times because of vomiting vomiting in the car um, but music man like just
2: so but clearly it sounds like your parents saw that this is a thing that was keeping you happy through yeah. through the treatment through this obviously quite aggressive
1: yeah and and i'm not sure what the uh the opinions on the surface like from a distance what people have about it because i mean it's easy for for the parents of somebody who um, is in the entertainment industry to be branded as like stage parents, yeah, but definitely by all means they weren't that at all. But yeah, that's 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 the only motivation. It made me happy. It was something that I really wanted. And um,
2: if your child if your child has got a disease that could possibly kill them, mm. and while they're getting treated for it, they want to do the thing that keeps them happy. Which parents going to say yeah. no? You can't do no, that.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah,
2: and I'm sure they they work to balance, you know, your whatever you're doing extracurricularly yeah.
1: with your health.
2: Yeah. They wouldn't have let you, you know, run yourself into the ground. No, no.
1: Yeah, they no, were pretty mindful. Because you become
2: quite immunocompromised, and you're yeah, yeah, you can't go out in the public. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I think you know, my parents had their own sort of philosophies when it came to um, you know, their idea of what type of mind state is their healing mind state. Mm. They probably didn't even know it back then that that's you know, but we know a lot more today about the the effects of the of of your mind and your mental state over your body and and um it was just really about creating that balance of just just keeping my life light and fun and yeah and um and focused on the things that I can control and the things that I love, yeah, it's quite
2: a young age to. Because a friend of mine, when I was in primary school, we were nine. Yeah. We were nine when he was diagnosed with leukemia. And I, one thing that was immediately evident was that he just wasn't at school much. Yeah, and yeah. That, that immediately has got to be quite, quite isolating.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and I think I, um, it's probably the reason why I'm comfortable socially being the odd one out, if I am because I've felt that pretty much for my whole life. I wasn't at school during particularly those years. But, you know, primary school, uh, my friends at primary school were always really supportive. That's the age where they haven't been corrupted by, you know, um, social opinions and all that type of stuff. So, yeah, they were always really, really supportive. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But then so through the Starlight Foundation you took a trip. And the Sailor Foundation is, oh, I guess it's like Make-A-Wish in the States yeah. or, or something similar. Mm. Um, so you took a trip to the UK yeah. to, to meet Mark Knopfler? First
1: time on a plane. Wow. Yeah. It was, the, it was such a big thing. I mean, we, we that part of my life, um, like I, I grew up in Camden, but before that, during those times I was living in Roos in Campbelltown and my dad's a, um, a bricklayer and the, the furthest we travel is – Oh, actually, back then I don't even think we'd, we we travelled to Byron Bay. It was just like, you know, a weekend up to Foster, and that was it. And now we were on this this jumbo jet going over water. Yeah. What to yeah. um to London to meet the guy that's in my posters in my room. Yeah, <laughs> that, and
0: that would have. And been- I broke
1: my arm um, the week before it, well, so I- I'm supposed to jam with Martin Offler and I'm here I am being a kid swinging on a rope in my, my Nun um my, my grandparents Italian grandparents um backyard with my cousin and yeah and, and just went uh, and fractured a mighty fracture in my forearm of my left hand. So the week before we travelled and so got a removable cast put on it and and then I just pushed through the pain and yeah so no- nothing's gonna stop me. Nah.
2: Right, right. Yeah. So you got you get to the States and I'm guessing uh, the UK, yeah. Sorry, you get to the UK and this was uh, mid to late 80s. Uh, so I was seven. So
1: what's that? I was born in 82. So what's that? 89. Yeah, 89. All right, yeah. so it's after
2: Brothers in Arms. They are still oh, yeah. possibly the biggest band on the planet. Yeah, this was just planet. before,
1: um, before uh, Calling Elvis. Right. Yeah. So, so sta- yeah, sta- sta- still they were just like fresh – just
2: playing yeah, stadiums yeah, yeah. everywhere. Yeah, 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 Playing stadiums everywhere. Yeah. And you, you go and make Mr. Headband Mark
1: Knopfler yeah, himself. totally. Which I was disappointed. I thought he'd, you know, at that age, I'm seven years old, I, like I'm expecting he's going to look just like he does in the posters with the yeah. headband and, and he's not. <laughs> yeah. But a, a strange feeling. It's, it's weird. I mean I still get we weird, not weirded out, but I still f- feel it, find it quite cosmic when, when uh, who you're used to seeing all the time in media and then you see them in real life. Still yeah. to this day it's it's a funny thing.
2: It is, yeah. It is. I guess you know we we put so many qualities and, and, and uh, um, yeah, attributes upon yeah. upon people in the first nanoseconds of seeing their faces. And totally. When you meet them, you're kind of adjusting to. Oh, hang on. Maybe I didn't get it right. Or well, maybe I didn't yeah. get it right. Oh. Yeah,
1: and also if they're repetitiously in front of you, you kind of have this own little relationship with yeah. them it without is. them even knowing. Yeah. <laughs>
2: It reminds me of that scene in Tropic Thunder. No,
1: do Simple Jack. Yeah. Do the thing we know you for. Do Simple Jack.
2: Um, so you, you, did you meet him backstage at a gig or no, what was it? No, it was um,
1: in a studio. They had it all set up what? at Air Studios as well and just this massive, big, tall-ceiling live room and, and um, had a couple lamps set up, had a bit of a, a crew there. Did he have the red and white strap? No, no. He, um, uh, and it's really... Um, Really, super, super chilled out guy, you know. Yeah, it, it's yeah, just um, what like pretty much a reflection of his songs, I would say. Uh huh. Yeah, he has that same energy, really yeah, simple or not simple, but you know, just simple yeah. and and um, yeah, there's definitely emotion there and there's warmth. And and yeah, we just had a jam over blues and gave me a few tips and. And um, and then, yeah. When I when we got back from from the UK, there was an amp and a guitar waiting for me in my house. He sent it over. Him. I still got it. Yeah, the guitar. Yeah.
2: So this is the the kid that begged and and, and drove and and pushed for a three quarter yeah, size acoustic.
1: Which, yeah, that's right, three quarter size acoustic. And I didn't have. Oh, did I? I th- I might have had an electric, just a cheap, you know, cheap yeah. one that I that I bought myself after busking through my own money. And um, yeah, and then I had this Fernandez. It was Fernandez, and wow. which which I recently took to a guitar tech just to get sort of done up. And I just thought, you know, it's probably him on the phone. He rings, you know, his sponsor. Go, can you send a guitar over yeah. and everything? And I was actually told they're not the original pickups, which means that he had actually, you know, specified, you know, to to make it a good one. Like it's because otherwise, you just I would have just got the standard. You know, thing. Unless it was one of his, so I don't know. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't spoken to him since, uh, since a, a follow up little jam we did when he was in Sydney before a gig at the Entertainment Center.
2: Let's say it was one of his.
1: Yeah, let's just, say was one of his. Sake. Yeah.
2: So I, I think I remember seeing that footage, and it, from there, he's this incredible story mm. uh, of this kid who's really talented, playing with the most recognizable guitar player in the world at the time. Um. And then, yeah, there you were. You were just on – Channel 9 was on. a really, really mm. championed you. Mm.
0: And
1: rightly so. It was a great story. Yeah. It made everyone feel good. Yeah, cool. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was blown away by the support. Yeah.
2: And, yeah. But then it went from thing to thing and it, it kind of eclipsed. Yeah. Uh, it eclipsed what originally brought it to everyone's attention. Oh, here's this kid who's facing this disease and he can play guitar. Isn't that nice? And then it was like, well, fuck, this kid can really play guitar.
1: Yeah, that's, that's- – how it seemed and I know both Daryl Summers and uh and Ray Martin were you know they kind of supported lots of different types of talent as well. It wasn't they weren't just putting on the you know, top fifty bands or whatever. Yeah. So I was lucky that it all happened during a time where there was that flexibility. And there's a um, lot
2: of television being produced in Australia at the time. It wouldn't happen now.
1: Yeah. But no. and,
2: and just just for, yeah. for context, be uh, YouTube Yeah, Yeah. well, Daryl Summers hosted a show on Saturday night in Australia, which was, you know, there was nothing else to watch, so it was humongous. This show, and Ray hosted a show between, I think it was noon and one thirty, yeah, every day. The older generation, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, it it was was daytime TV, yeah, totally. But you just don't have those shows anymore. And these two people were definitely tastemakers, and definitely people Mm. that, you know, people would become stars.
1: From off, being on the shows, their, yeah. Their I mean, it was there. There's only three channels. Or four yeah, channels. exactly. And and for the overseas acts, that's it's what you did. Yeah, you toured. You came here. You did yeah. Hey Hey Saturday. You did the midday show, and yeah. And, and through
2: and around this time, is this when you really knuckled down and went, "Um, oh, I can I can do something with this, and I'm just going to just know, sit in the funny. woodshed."
1: Yeah, it's um, at no point I didn't really start becoming goal driven until much later when it came to music, like when I started to understand how the industry works and all that, much later in life. And that is funny enough when things went pear-shaped, you know, Um, because during those days all I wanted to do was play guitar. So I was just focused on what the next thing was. I mean, my my parents – and my parents weren't trying to create anything bigger than what it was either. It was, um, you know, we went on Hey Hey, we went on the midday show. I I practised for those, you know. you know, those songs and, and then One Hey Hey show Just a moment of synchronicity Jimmy Barnes was on there And and then He Obviously dug it And um, His wife had a A label A kit Like sort of For mm. Where um, What was focused on um, uh, Kids um, That was in conjunction With Mushroom Records And he, They wanted to sign me So they signed me And then Within Six months, I'm on tour with Jimmy Barnes and Diesel, who were the, the biggest. It was at, at the peak for them. Yeah. Soul the, deep.
2: Jimmy Barnes is uh, Australia's Bruce Springsteen. He's, oh, the, man, he's yeah. the working class hero. Yeah. You, he, he sings the songs of the of the blue collar man and woman.
1: And I couldn't have been on a bigger tour. Like no, It was
2: just. At the time. It was before dance music was a massive, massive thing. Just before dance music was a massive, massive thing. Yeah, yeah. And rock and roll bands were still packing out suburban pubs. Yeah, that's thousands right. Thousands yeah, of totally. people. Yeah, but not not just entertainment centers, but no, like yeah. the Beanley Tavern had a room that you could fit three thousand people, mm-hmm. three thousand people in. Yeah, um, those things. Don't where exist it was
1: it, where where um, uh, bands was like a walk like a walking crowd scene. Like it was a scene where you you just you just went there even yeah. if you didn't know who was on. It's just you wanted to go out and see a band. So did you? Um, were you touring with a band at the time? <laughs> well, that's the funny thing is that. So we get this, you know, Jimmy and Jane say say to my parents, This is an opportunity. We really think, um, keep in mind that I wasn't like, there was no real fund, there was no funding behind it. So it was up to my parents to come up with the money to tour our mm. whole family for five weeks around Australia. Uh, I think we're getting paid $150 for support per gig. So yeah, they took the risk and we couldn't afford like session players. So my dad, oh, Peter the bricklayer, you know, plays a bit of bass. We should teach him some of the songs. So I had Peter the bricklayer on bass, had Jimmy's guitar tech on drums, and and my dad playing guitar, rhythm guitar. And I and I, when I was actually quizzing my mum on it recently, I mean that was a big thing. Dad had never played a gig. I'd 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 busked, and I'd played on Hey Hey and that, but I'd never done like a proper show. And boom, entertainment centers straight away in front of like.
2: 10,000, 12,000 people.
1: Man. What was your set then? With Peter the Bricklayer. Peter uh, the Bricklayer. Pete the the bricklayer.
2: Mate, <laughs> when you got Pete on bass, he lays, it, he lays it down. Lays it down like he a bed, mate. He lays it down. He's the mortar. You can
1: keep going. You can go forever. Straight yeah. line. Uh, so Not just another brick in the wall. What's, oh, okay, what was
2: the set like?
1: Um, it was just blues, man. Yeah, yeah it was just the instrumental blues. And it was a two-part tour as well because – I was doing my first uh, first album or it was at least the first single which was a cover of an Elvis song called Little Egypt which we much later in life realised Little Egypt's about a stripper. Mm-hmm. So it's <laughs> me doing a cover of um, – and the, the singer was Chris Bailey from The Saints but on, on tour we used David Campbell um, as the singer.
2: Who's now the host of a morning show on, yeah. on television? Isn't it
1: funny? And um, yeah, and and those were the yeah that that whole tour gave birth to my uh, took my goals to a whole yeah. other place. Well, not goals, but you know my my dreams expanded on them completely.
2: And so when you came back from that tour, I'm guessing the prospect of well, I could become a bricklayer too, or I could. Maybe go to uni. There was
1: no time because at the literally at the end of the tour, I met my uh, who became my manager in the states. So he was putting on a a show in San Francisco for the Guitar Player Magazine's 25th anniversary, with all these amazing guitar players, and he he invited us to come. So how did he hear about you? Just through Hey Hey, and oh, well, he's an Australian guy. All right. And um, he was, uh, at the time in Australia, he was kind of famous for putting on, remember those Rebel Guitar Comps? Uh, you probably don't. Um, yeah, they were, uh, anyway. Uh, so, yeah, so he's putting on this event and, yeah, within six months we're flying over there and in and, and that same trip, just these other things happen. Like that's when I got to play with Albert Collins um, wow. at um, San Francisco Blues Festival. Um, the year before he died. and um, What's that like? You're this little
2: white kid from the outskirts yeah, of Sydney yeah, yeah.
1: meeting up with, like,
2: let's just even rewind. Like even when I, I used to be a roadie, uh, I'm not too much older than, older than you. I'm probably about seven years old, eight yeah. years older than you are. Um, when I was a roadie uh, when I was 18 in like 92, 93, I, you know, And it's probably been written about in many a book, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say. Jimmy Barnes on the road, there was a reputation around what happens on the road when that band goes on the road. Yeah, yeah. And did you see
1: any of those kind of
2: shenanigans? No. Were you you insulated
1: from it? No, no. I think uh, them being family people as well, like, you know, we were – you know, I was hanging around with Mahalia and and Jackie and and um oh they were all your age yeah they yeah. were all my my age and and so they were they were aware of that stuff but I later heard that that was, that was a pretty you know big inverted commas tour and um but I didn't see any of that we kind of we we'll definitely fish it out of the water like I mean it's probably, probably more of a shock for my parents really oh, right. rather than rather than me yeah um because they're um they're 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 really clean people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Did that, did that lifestyle ever come your way at any point in your life?
1: No, no, no. Probably because I ended up, the people who I ended up collaborating with over the years, because of the age, they were often, they'd often experienced so much life that they were on the other side of it if they did get involved. So, you know, when I briefly crossed paths with Bo Diddley in, in Switzerland. I mean he was handing out don't do drug cards. <laughs> like he had he had his it was like a business card with his face on it. And um and he came up to me and he's like, you know, congratulated me and everything and he goes, Don't do drugs, kid, you know <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: So there was a lot of a lot of that going on. I think um if I was collab- if I was working with people that were only, you know, that were in there uh, early 20s and stuff, it probably would have been completely different. Yeah. So, and and also, you do have, keep in mind, I have my parents on tour all the time. Yeah, of course. So, there's not really much, my curiosity only went so far anyway. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: I guess I was asking more about, you know, later in your career as you're an adult and.
1: Yeah, I think it just in. Uh, I'm, I'm a con, control is a thing for me. So, yeah. which is probably gives birth to a lot of my anxieties, but. Anything that kind of makes me feel out of control or, or whatever, it's I'm just not interested in. So I think there's there's a lot of fear around it, rather than um, that just ended up um, smothering the curiosity altogether. Right. So yeah. Well, that's alcohol. Um, on the other hand, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: That's that. Well, that was the thing that worked for me for years. Yeah alcohol, was a, it wasn't a problem, it was a solution.
1: Yeah. And, and well, then
2: it became a problem. Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, for me, alcohol was like a um, – I, I never really started drinking to sort of relax. It was just – it was more let's just see how fucked up I can get. <laughs> it was like a rush. It was a stimulation thing and, and um, uh, whilst I wasn't um, sort of using it to – Try and block out some of the problems I was having. It created problems just by by uh, what it was doing in my system. Um, that's part of part of part of what was going on when it all um, went a little dark there. But um, yeah, right. Yeah. Do you still
2: drink, or is it?
1: No, well, I came off. Uh, I stopped drinking for about four years um, from about 2012. The last the last time I I I got ripped was my Bucks night, and it was not consensual if you can call it that i I, I wasn't it was very reluctant and i was drinking very hesitantly and probably not as hard as what i would have if i yeah yeah and it's i stopped because it it was making me feel really bad like not not because of the the problems it was causing like i wasn't getting on it you know throwing fists in the air or anything but it was because the hangovers became emotional (laughs) (laughs) and and just no, but I really mean it, like it just inflamed anxiety completely and then, and then it began to sort of bleed into actually the drinking part. So I'd have one or two drinks and feel anxious and then I'm like, "Well, I, 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 I fear it now. I oh, like you're, it. you're lucky that and you had back, that. now I enjoy a drink but it's different. Oh,
2: you're lucky. You're, yeah. yeah, you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was definitely like, I, I definitely got caught in that cycle where you pulled out. Yeah, then I started to drink to make the anxiety go away. Oh, uh, wow! Well, yeah, 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 <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, you're like just stuck in this plug hole that you can't get out of. Yeah, yeah. so you're uh, you're lucky that you have a, a different relationship to it now. But so yeah. tell us, tell us what happened. You on this, you're on this freaking rocket ship, mm-hmm. all right? Mm-hmm. And and then you said as you started to get an idea about the business, and you started to get an idea about things
1: like that. That's when things started to fall apart. What what well, happened there? I mean part of my childhood career um ended after my second re- uh, album release with and that was with Michael Jackson's label and um there were a series of things where where that didn't go to plan uh number one terrible timing because it was the first time his a case popped up about him oh man and so here's me a 12 year old and um, the record company went. Ooh, we can't be publicising. You're going to get caught up in this. And they're really good people. Like I still keep in touch with um, some of those guys today. And so they publicise it um, with hesitance. So hang on. Did you did you meet Michael or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. What? Of times. Yeah. Fuck. Hang on. I've got to get a glass of water for this. <laughs> All
2: right. So Bo Diddley, Albert Collins,
1: <laughs>
2: Phoebe King.
1: Yeah, Jesus,
2: tell me about tell me about tell me about Michael Jackson.
1: Um, well, I didn't meet him until much later in my deal uh, with him. And and first time I met him, we were up in a hotel room. The family, a couple of his people, and um and he walks in, and like I'm twelve, and like I knew who he a lot. See, a lot of the time, like I didn't know who. I was playing with, or really understand it. Maybe they've been on posters and they've been on TV, but I just didn't really get the weight of it, which is a good thing because I probably just accepted it for what it was. I'm know, standing the experience on stage. It was yeah, that's right. Playing track.
2: with Bo Diddley. I'm on stage exactly, yeah. with Albert well, Collins. Yeah,
1: and um, and then yeah, so we met him, and and it was just kind of he brought some gifts like some Sony stuff and and Sony discman. That's pretty cool. Made a discman, and um. And then he kind of looked a little bit awkward and then he gestured to my mum if if they could go into the other room away from everyone. So they must have been in there for like five minutes and we're all, everyone's just looking around you, going. Him and your mum. Yeah. Yeah. And we're looking around going this is weird and and then came out and then nothing and, you know. Is there anything else do you want to ask Michael? And my brother, who's four years under me, goes, yeah, can you do the moonwalk? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, I've got my lawyer shoes on, but, you know. But he's really gentle-spoken, yeah. so shy. And Is he a tall man? And, oh, Todd, I was pretty short. Uh, can't remember. And I was sitting down. Uh can't remember. But anyway, afterwards all it was was that he he didn't realize that my brother was there and he only brought gifts for me uh, and he felt terrible. And I mean, that's how nice he was. He felt terrible. He's like, yeah. can you just make sure they share? And and then the second time was um, I, I played with him. I was supposed to do a gig with him um, in New York and we did the dress rehearsal and a lot. And so I'm, I'm playing guitar uh, for Black and White. Wow. Right. And we're up front of the stage and... Um, sounded great on stage, incredible, and um, and then we're just side by side rocking out for the last part of Black and White, and bang, down on the knees, and he just collapsed, just face planted the front of the stage, and I thought it was, I thought he was doing a James Brown, like I thought, yeah, because everything was so theatrical. I mean, they had yeah. me jumping through fake quad boxes and all sorts of stuff, yeah, and um, yeah, and he'd collapsed, and they took him away on a stretcher and cancelled the gig. Oh no. And I mean that was in that was early 90s. So he was struggling back then with that stuff. And uh yeah, and then and then you know the way the world works, I'm not there was a we were pretty hesitant about whether I should have been doing that performance because my parents made sure that I was when when I was performing that um Um, Because it was too easy for people to go, oh, he's just a 12-year-old, you know, kid sort of arsing around. And that performance would have been that because I was Macaulay Culkin. Right. You know, I was jumping through quad boxes. I wasn't playing blues, lead, the stuff that I love. Um, And, you know, I'm not really sure whether if I had that, that type of energy around me, whether BB King would have invited me on his tour. Right. Which happened within that year.
2: So, just for if people who don't remember the video, that was in the video, Macaulay Culkin was yeah, the. Had that had that role of, yeah, I'm yeah. going to play guitar and piss my parents off. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and that was And
1: a, I, remember, I remember the choreographer taking me through it, and I just I, it just didn't feel me at all. would be like, you know, we want you to jump through the quad boxes, jump. And I just, am rolling through the quad boxes. It's just not me. I'm, I'm the opposite to choreography.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What, do you, Now, I can only imagine what it became but what do you remember of the the vortex that would have surrounded someone like michael jackson like how many layers of people were there between the world and him and you know
1: was there a just was he insulated from the world from yeah, where you were yeah for sure absolutely i mean I, a lot of that stuff was shielded from me as well back then but yeah how could he not be like mm. he he must have felt like an alien at times yeah
2: like it's been the most famous person on the planet since you're ten,
1: at least. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was
2: I was in LA when he died. I was he, him and Farrah had died on the same day mm. in 2009.
1: Yeah, that really upset me, and 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 that kind of put me down. Like, you know, like we've, we've talked about how many people now, three or four people that played you know, big parts in my career that are dead. Yeah, and it's a weird feeling. It's just weird. You just you just happened to be there when they were yeah close to the, everybody dies man yeah I know I know it's something I still struggle with yeah it's going to happen
2: to all of us yeah it was a Flaming lip song everyone you know some yeah, day that's Will die right. yeah
1: do you realise <laughs> yeah it's a great song
2: oh I know no, it's yeah. the best um yeah that, that that's that's a lot for for a kid to, to to process I guess
1: yeah yeah absolutely and um um but yeah as you said you you process it later. Yeah. Um later in life cuz it's just like well oh.
2: I didn't know he was that sick back then. I didn't know that he was struggling back then.
1: Yeah, well exhaustion, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how deep he's uh, you know if there are any other issues that went on back then, but you know, as I get older and experience my own challenges, it's music life. Um and there's lots of other occupations. It's it's amazing like the body and the mind goes through a lot when yeah. you go into a even if you're healthy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We take a, you know, even something as simple as a consistency in the quality of the bed you 're sleeping in <laughs> if you're sleeping in a different kind of bed yeah. every single night yeah it's weird
1: yeah yeah <laughs> even that's if right. you get to yeah. bed at the same time of day no yeah, it's weird, absolutely, and your food mm-hmm. um, i went to a I recently went to a a um, mental health panel, and yeah, the psychologist was re- just reminding us all that you know routine when you're out of routine you're sleeping in different environments you've you know schedules like all that stuff is no it's not like you go to work you wake up you know and you've you've you're nine to five, you know what to expect more or less throughout the day it's all over the shop
2: yeah yeah so you mentioned that later that year you went on tour with BB King yeah. Who a lot of people would have come to know through his work with you too. That's when he, in the late 80s, had suddenly people hearing this guy that they otherwise would never have heard of. Yeah. And um, he was very clever. He opened up a, a big chain of restaurants all across the state. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was very clever around that. Um, what's that
1: phone call like? What? That's, um, yeah, that it, I was at an age because I think I would have been about 14 by that stage. Um, but I was at an age where I, kn- I then knew what this, how big this was. Yeah. I mean, I'm playing with B.B. King. That's the blues. That's just yeah the man. And I was on tour with him for a couple of weeks and he would invite me on stage to play two songs with him in the middle of his set. And my dad, <laughs> you know, I had to set up my pedals just before and he's, I he's, uh, forget what song was the start of Rock Me Baby, the intro. He'd, he'd be instructed, get out, put the pedals on, and then come off. And he's he hates crowds, so he's just quickly, you know, he's in front of 20,000 people running up on stage. And each time B.B. King, being the man he is, would want to acknowledge this is Nathan's father and everything. And then but and he just kept getting embarrassed and then finally just got the hang of the timing to throw B.B. off so that by the time B.B. could think, about introducing him. He'd already nicked off off stage and, right. and then it'd start. With, and the man who was just here a <laughs> moment ago. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then, yeah, we'd just sit and pull up a chair and, yeah, but that whole tour was amazing because I got to see blues in a, in a way that was, like, entertaining as well. Like, it was a whole show. He you know, was a real showman a lot of fire, it wasn't just boring blues, like there's so much fire and passion, he had two drummers, you know, backstage smashing the shit out of their drums, everything was just loud and awesome and, and the whole crowd, you know, every single soul is is feeling everything. And I, I, never, I never got a chance teller, to see him. So he would tell a story between oh, I songs? Oh, would tell a story and, and he had the same story, you know, yeah. for that tour. Yeah. That's the, that's the show, you know. Yeah. The show of it, you know. The a show. People in yeah. Chattanooga don't need to know that the people in yeah, Des Moines yeah. saw the same thing <laughs> two nights ago. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I was lucky. The people who I teamed up with, I got to see the importance of a show, not just playing the songs but a show. Diesel was the same. Jimmy was the same. BB, Michael. There's yeah. show and showbiz. Yeah, that's, absolutely.
2: You know, there's yeah. that's, that's, that's two I learned in Los Angeles. Um, there's show and show business and – they call it show business, not show friends.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I
2: know. <laughs> That's the other one. Yeah, show business, not That's show a, friends. That,
1: that hurts too when you it, learn yeah, that one. Yeah, when you're on the wrong end of that Cheers. conversation.
2: <clears throat> uh, so you've you've you gone on tour, and hopefully
1: it's a bit more than 150 bucks a gig by this point. Uh, sometimes, no. Yeah, really? but Yeah, but you know, you, you you've. People, you know, when you're in the music industry, you you get money from weird places, and then yeah. you know places that you expect there to be money, there's not, and you know. But it, it, by that stage, it was starting to all balance balance out. Not making a, a you know, still had a good. Remember, like back then, the amount of money that it cost to do an album, you know, like two, three hundred grand, and you have to recoup that. Yeah. Yeah, and
2: yeah. Whereas I've got sitting on this desk. Um, yeah. this, this recorder and these two microphones. Exactly. You know, this a, this would have been a $100,000 broadcasting yeah, operation. It's a beautiful time to
1: be connecting to people seriously. Yeah, it really awesome. is. Yeah.
2: So at, at what point do your parents make the decision about high school? At what point do your parents? Well, do...
1: they were always encouraging me to just, uh, you know, study and do well just in case you don't want to do this. Um, later down the track, so we had tutors. Ironically, that was... The best marks i got was when i was tutored on the road Returned to school not do so well right um so yeah and then we we pulled out when uh yeah michael jackson and sony parted ways and that was it then it was like you know what maybe it's time to just finish year 11 and 12 and work out what you want to do and by that stage i was pretty i was i didn't know what i wanted to do anymore i was exhausted as well i still loved what i was doing but what whether to make it a full career, do I want to be a producer, do I want to be a writer, like I don't know what Uh I want to do anymore. And the best thing they could have done was go, all right. And they're awkward years. Anyway, when you're 16, 15, 16 years old, best not to be in front of the cameras during those days. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Everything's
1: changing. It's all very weird. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. The cavoodle years where you're just kind of running around rubbing rubbing up against anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I was trying to explain that to. So uh, our girl's thirteen, and I was trying to explain it to my wife. Um, You know, being a fourteen-year-old boy, you you think you've got control of your decision-making process. Well, this is my experience. I thought I had control of my (laughs) decision-making process until the the, the testosterone
1: and the hormones and the arousal gets involved, and I can't. I can't think about anything. No, that's it. I know and, and you know what I got sent to a boys' school for that reason <laughs> and it did the opposite I think like because it's like this wolf that's just caged and it just you know I didn't know how to be friends with girls you know until much later on in life
2: yeah it took, <laughs> it, took it took it took me a while did you have so uh, 15, 16, was there a, a, any kind of emptiness in your life when all this excitement was suddenly not there anymore or were you feeling oh, I was okay? relieved yeah, yeah? yeah
1: but I really struggled um uh, with friends socially. Um, You've been hanging out with adults for the last seven years. Yeah, well, it was just – yeah, I think you come back to school and, you know, we all know that Australia can have a tall poppy thing going on and it's just – yeah, it's tough. That would have sucked. It's tough. And and I had people who supported me and I had people who hated me. And not that I, – and I, I – like – as a person I can I'd be the first to say I was up myself and all that but I I the opposite I'm the guy who gets booked for a gig and then doesn't tell anybody about the gig because I'm worried that people are going to come and see that there's nobody there <laughs> which is ironic <laughs> so I don't li- you know like the attention and yeah and so I I definitely was the same when I was like I'd go to school and go play oh, I don't want people to know that I've been on TV this week and mm. And um, but yeah, just you know, people are dickheads sometimes.
2: <laughs> people are dickheads sometimes, and unfortunately, and <laughs> it, it says more about the people than than you. Yeah, a lot of the time. yeah, the dickheadery is is more <laughs> a reflection upon their own nuances and
1: yeah, that's right. Issues yeah. and with the world, and you don't world. know that when you're a kid. No. I mean, you get told it. You get your parents. I mean, my I think they were good training years for me because I, I got used to. Um, I learned how to be comfortable and strong within myself in whatever surroundings, even if I walked into a room filled with people who I feel like hate me, I knew how to just hold it. Cause I don't really consider myself as being bullied when I was school because I had, I knew how to fight and I knew how to, you know, yeah, I just knew how to handle myself.
2: Wow. I've never been in a fight in my life.
1: Yeah. Well, I think like, I, I trained for a long time and, um, what, in a martial arts? Martial art? arts, yeah. And it, was all, it wasn't for the art. It was for purely for self-defense. As real as it could be, that's the type of martial arts I wanted to do. And I think that confidence in myself, I'm going to say this now and then I'm going to get my head punched in. You know, when I, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's that confidence that you have that I think you get bullied when people sense your fear as well. Um, confidence is, and your aura is an amazing thing. It's, a, it's probably the best form of defense i reckon and that's what kept me out of trouble yeah
2: the unspoken look in your eye
1: well yeah and it's like when you're confronted and and instead of running you you just have this presence that you're okay you're you're ready for it and you and 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 the fact that you don't buy into that fear allows you to make calculated decisions on how you what you say back and and to to try and defuse the situation Uh as well I've talked my way out of a lot of fights. Yeah, and that, there you go. It's a confidence <laughs> as m- most people have never been in one, and it's good.
2: Yeah, I'd rather I'd rather <laughs> never find out what it's like. Um, but part of me does want to think. You know, I should probably learn something like Aikido or something like that, or Jiu Jitsu, or something. Well, my
1: kids are going to learn it for sure. Like yeah. I think I just think to have some basic self defense and to know how to handle a, a high uh, handle yourself in a in a. Have like sort of a fear-driven situation, and I think it's important these days. Yeah. Probably, just you know, it's it's not like you need to be, uh, you know, doing jump and spinning, whatever's that'll probably get you into more trouble anyway. Yeah. It's just just understanding it, yeah. And I, I also like the physical, the, the the physical and the the fitness aspects to yeah. it. And what do you get? I, I miss it.
2: What do you yeah. get when you were doing it? What do you? What would you get out of the, the physical discipline? I mean, you're a fit-looking guy. You you obviously keep some sort of practice.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, what did I get out of it? Um, I like I I had a, a, a pretty severe temper up until I was in my early twenties, and it's probably still there, but it's it's now because I pushed it, not pushed it down, but like, um, well, I thought I learned how to deal with it. I think it's just popped up in another way, and it's kind of comes back on myself rather than project it out so i think a lot of a lot of that sort of temper was expressed through the training as well it got me into my body and i had a way of channeling that aggression it was great bonding with my father because we did it together oh cool um which is a problem when we uh when we uh had arguments in the family though because we just start yeah well, no <laughs> make it sound it's it, you yeah. know. We'd end up sp- end up sparring and it'd turn ugly, but um, and and having something different that's not musical that was a goal as well. Yeah. Working through belts and having yeah.
2: Which particular discipline did you follow?
1: Martial arts. Yeah. Um, I followed a couple. I um, the main one I spent most of the time on was a, a it was type of close quarter combat out in Campbelltown called um, Budajitsu, and there was a guy who sort of trained the military in Cambodia for fifteen years, and and um. I think his his background from memory was karate, but he he um it was all. It, it later became an MMA. So because right. it was what is before what we know now as is MMA. MMA yeah. So it involved um, Brazilian jiu jitsu, uh-huh. Muay Thai, and and all that stuff. But then I I ended up uh, second dan black belt in that, and then when I moved to Koji, um, I I gravitated towards a style called Krav Maga, which is the uh, Israeli yeah the tactical Krav Maga, which is kind of a little more street, and I like things that where you don't have to remember too much. You know, I don't want to learn. I suppose that's why I've veered away from some of the um, the other disciplines because I don't I don't have the time to learn twenty million wrist locks. Yeah, and and all this stuff. And I want to work with a style that. Um, I'm not saying that they don't, but that I'm not a big guy, so there's just moves I would never use. Yeah, and um, I want a style that um, is not based around having to have a certain uh, level of strength so yeah tactical crab maga was great that's probably and then and then mma i did that for a while and then i stopped when i got chronic fatigue so i haven't done it since oh shit <laughs> which i miss and, and you know now i probably could but i don't it's time so now i've, I've just started um um I, I used to do a lot of weights and everything which i never really liked weights and after my energy levels came back i'm like you know what do i want to do what's fun so I started surfing again, and um, and then I do gymnastic strength training, because the thing I love about that is that it works on your mobility. It mm-hmm. opens you up as well. Yoga is a bit too slow mm-hmm. um, for me. I meditate every day, um, so I kind of get that in my meditation sessions. But when I want to be active. It's like it. It's it's just good for so many things. The gymnastic strength training and it's something I can travel with. I just put a couple rings in my bag, and I don't even need them. So. Yeah, that's only something I've been doing for six months. And I love it. Right. It's so good. Yeah. Because your goal isn't, you know, to be, um, okay, I want to be, I want this bicep to be bigger or whatever. It's, it's, or to be, to be fit and you're doing it for fit. It's like you're learning um, different movements so that it's in the fun of being able to flip upside down and, you know, and then the byproduct is, is your fitness, which right. I really like because, who wants to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and go, okay, I'm going to work at being fit now. Yeah. You know, you want to have some fun, start the day with having some fun. So that's my priority now. Do
2: you still, do you still practice every day? Martial arts? No, guitar. No.
1: Oh, guitar. Um, by default because I play every day. Yeah. And then every now and then I'll come up, I'll you know, see somebody do a lick or whatever and I'm like, ooh, i want to learn how to do that so yeah for sure when i don't play i'm rusty as all yeah shit when i um yeah do it and i've i stopped playing i stopped performing for four years when yeah when i'm because of the anxiety and um and i suppose that's where i'm at at the moment where i'm just trying to get my nerve back to get back up on stage and um and uh yeah, and yeah, I can hear it. My, my guitar, I've never been more connected to my guitar now than what I've ever been. Mm. Like it's um, because you just, you learn now as I get older just how to how to focus better, how to filter out the crap that doesn't matter, you know, not worry about who's in the crowd, money, nothing. It's just here with your musical instrument and you're just wanting to express something and have some fun and consequently the what I've come up with is just, more, it feels more authentic.
2: Can we talk about the anxiety?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so
2: tell me, you're you're a kid. You're on national television every week. You're standing on stage in front of twenty thousand people with BB King. Yeah, and what no did, anxiety. And what did it creep up?
1: What happened later in life? And it was a mortality thing because I'd never, you know, probably in the early days, like when the first time I ever busked, which I was like six, uh, I think, and. Like I wasn't a kid who went, la-da-da-da-da, da, da, da. I want to be on stage and do a big dance and look at me, look at me. Like I don't want you to look at me. But from that point I um, learned through my parents how to to channel those nerves and and, and sort of rebrand it as, as excitement and just this fire that kind of, you know, creates that performance. And I've never really had time uh, the time off and a time away from that for that to disappear, so I've always had this sort of pump up to get on stage and just ugh, this hunger, and I feel those nerves, but they're not. It's not fear. It's not. It's not. It works for me. And then probably in my mid twenties, I just I uh, late twenties. It was it just. It was just death, like just friends dying, and 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 just. I remember one day kind of realising my own mortality, and it freaked me out. And that's the first time I had an anxiety attack. And then I feared – and I didn't know it was anxiety. I didn't know it was fear. I didn't know it was anything. Like I just thought I was going insane. Like I just felt like my – I was leaving my body in that moment. And I suppose that's kind of what I believed for so long as well. Like there's something wrong with me. Like this is – and my mum had – had experienced it on and off for years, but I never saw it. And then it just kind of followed me and grew. And then I'd lose more people and, and then it would be triggered. But then I realized much later is that it was my relationship to fear that it, it wasn't the fear itself that was causing me the problem. It was my relationship and how I responded to it because then I became afraid of other things, like not death like a, my low point is is being is is it that created insomnia and that's the and then i, I couldn't couldn't sleep cuz i was just had these all these crazy beliefs i didn't know anything about thoughts and their you know the, the i was completely identified with my thoughts i just didn't know any other way to be Oh, so not observing
2: your thoughts. No, I didn't know how to do any of that. I'm having a thought that, let's just say, I don't know, I'm having a thought that if I kiss a stranger, I might get a cold sore. So therefore I'll I'll never kiss any strangers. In fact, you know what, it'd be safer if I just never left the house. Yeah, yeah. That'd be better. That's a really good idea. Yeah, yeah. And never questioning that because every other thought you've ever had. Yeah is based on a fact and you've always trusted
1: your brain's ability to perceive reality and and it's also obvious what things are nonsense yes you know oh how about i slap that guy in the head when i'm walking down the street like you know not that i'd ever do that but you know you get these random thoughts and but it's just something you say yeah that's just weird but when there's some reality to it uh well certainly if you've
2: never had any need or desire or, or or reason to question
1: no, that's thoughts. right. So then you just operate that way, and
2: you believe that well, this is yeah. clearly true. You're not this taught is...
1: that when you're younger. No. So no. Um,
2: when did you realize that you? When did you get help?
1: Uh, I got help. Like the the last band that I was in, that and the Kings. The last two years was was terrible. It was just terrible because I couldn't sleep. I was afraid all the time, and then because I couldn't sleep and I was afraid all the time, that gave birth to more shitty experiences. Oh, it's the worst. And that's the cycle. So then I kept believing them. So now all of a sudden, I'm not just fearing of death. I'm fearing of going on stage feeling anxious because it follows me up on stage. Now now I'm afraid of being on stage. Now I'm afraid of going to the cafe. Now I'm afraid of this. I just, and I remember I sort of had a blackout on stage once um, at a festival. And I was so exhausted. And by this time, I was a year deep into insomnia. Oh, man. And... We're an independent band. We have friends helping us out. You know, we didn't have a tour manager and I had to do an hour and a half of a set in two hours' time and I had half blacked out and I was exhausted. I couldn't stomach food, couldn't do anything. I had to carry my gear to the stage and get everything. I'm the front man. Like no, I couldn't call out for help and I felt bad to. I mean I should have. And my wife was actually singing backing vocals for us at the time and, and, and I told her, I'm freaking out here and I was just lying down on the ground and I, I can't play. And, I, and still keep in mind, I didn't know anxiety. I didn't know how to manage it, nothing, nothing about it. I felt like I was going insane and I went back to the accommodation. And I was shivering in bed, dreading, dreading this gig. And I did it because, and I'm glad I did. Like I just pushed through it and it was, it was fucked. And then, and then a week later, I had a uh, we were doing a gig with Rose Tattoo, and it hit me on the drive up. I was driving, backing singers was in the car, and who I didn't know too well at the time, and it just washed over me again. This foreign, insane feeling, and I had to pull over. and And I, when that happens, I feel so alienated. It's like nobody exists. It's just like somebody's giving me a bad pill or something, and um. And I didn't know what to do and I just slept. I couldn't stop sleeping and then I wake and freak and then sleep because she took over the wheel. Right up until the stage where they dragged me on, put the guitar on me. And, you know, when I pull it all apart because I, I stopped playing and and I just had this restlessness that and this voice that just said, Don't let your love for music disappear over this. I realise when you pull it apart because right, and that's just a storm of a memory, you know, ah, oh, the the fear, blah blah blah. But when you pull it apart, it's everything around it. It's not the music that I didn't, don't like. It's not the, the performance that I don't like. It's those feelings, and I need. And then from that point, I was like, I need to learn. I need to know about what's going on here because I went to the doctors and they couldn't tell me anything, and um, I got blood tests and and I remember. Just oh, in in a fucked up sort of uh, moment, I kind of wanted there to be something wrong, just so I had an answer. Because I was like, every single day I have irrational fear. Like I have a panic attack. I still <laughs> this is my low point. Whether I should brush my teeth after I have a shower or before I have a shower. <laughs>
2: It was just like but when you what's going on with me. But here? when you haven't slept that much. When yeah, you haven't I know. slept and, and sleep deprivation is a is a it's a it's a weapon of torture. Yeah. You know, I know. and yeah, you I can really time. mess up yeah. how you perceive the world. It can really fuck yeah. up your brain. Yeah. And it doesn't t- you're on a hair trigger. Anything will make
1: you Yeah, and particularly later, as you get older, your body's different and and, and yeah, so then anyway, I uh, what was your path up? What was your um, path out? I saw. Um, when did it start? Two, to feel, feel um, two things. Uh, definitely, uh, I worked with a psychologist who has sort of a background. He uses a lot of uh, mindfulness principles, which at the start I was like, ah, oh, really? like it just. I didn't believe that these techniques could work because it just. No, you don't understand. I feel like I'm going insane. Yeah, yeah and and such and such techniques, you know, and the repetition and, and learning about, learning, like that's a big thing, to know that you are not your thoughts and to, hey, demystified, no wonder I freak out every day, look at the dialogue that's going on in my fucking head, like that's incredible. And you can't see what's going on in the back of your head unless you give yourself the opportunity to stay still long enough Long enough to watch them, even to learn how to watch them is is one thing, but then to actually take the time to do it and then that opened up a whole other world because then it, it wasn't about the external world anymore it was about what was going on inside and how to best talk to myself and how to you know to, to uncover what is going on in the background there and stuff that it's, you know, the more layers that you pull away, the stuff that's been going on for a long time that I've held on to beliefs, false beliefs, like, you know, yeah. So that was one aspect. And then the other aspect was um, I worked with a integrative medicine doctor and a clinical nutritionist that showed me how many things were going on in my system that were working against me. And, so I, for years, I, like I remember somebody t- talking to me about this stuff. I'm like, oh, nutrition, you know, I just thought it would be the difference between having just a little more energy or not is your nutrition. But, man, when you when you look at the research on what goes on in your gut and its relationship with the mind and, you know, all that stuff, it's powerful. It's really powerful. Um, you mentioned that your,
2: your wife was a backing singer at the time mm, when it was really dark. How, for people who are listening who might either relate to your side of this, what's happening, or her side is happening, how how did the two of you manage to, you know, keep a
1: relationship while this was going on? Well, it's difficult, hey, because all of a sudden you're seeing the person that you turn to for strength is now vulnerable and weak, you know, inverted commas. Communication, it's tolerance, it's so important. It's really, really important, and that's when you'll you'll see what your relationship is made up of as well. Like if you whether you're in a relationship that's relies on good times, and that's what you're in love with, yeah, or it's something more than that. See, I like Amy in my relationship. We were tested quite early on when her mum passed away because her mum a year into us. Being in a relationship, her mum was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and then so that was quite a journey for a couple of years, and she passed away, and then I had to be the support for for her while she was mourning, and she went through her own thing um, for ages. So, um, but it's yeah, it's I don't know. It sounds simple, but it's it really is communication and tolerance, and then and
2: um, and how about how about now? As you you're clearly you know, in a phase where you're managing what's going on, uh, using yeah. various techniques and whatever yeah. else is helping you. How, how about now? How do you guys deal with good days and bad days?
1: Well, let's say before I came here, you know, this is the first face-to-face interview I've done in in since I burnt out. So, the 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 things that I'm that are uh, that I'm reintroducing myself to create this certain level of nerves. And what I realised is that they're just bodily sensations, and it's your mind that's branding them as being either a threat or whether it's good or not. And because for so long my those bodily sensations were try, were indicating that there's there actually is something wrong that you need to address. That's kind of what's been in my system for a long time. So now I'm getting used to going, no, this is excitement here. This is, you know, you have exciting dreams. You have things that, that fire you up. You can't expect that you're gonna go on stage or have an interview you know, numbing, staying out, like you know, and just being completely blissed out and cruisy and everything. You're gonna feel like this thing. So catch yourself each time. You know, your thoughts are trying to tilt it another way. So anyway, so just before that, she knows when to when to kind of let's just say give me, give me a slap, or whether you know, there's. We need to have a discussion here, because yeah, sometimes you do. You just need to go whack, 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 dude, come on. And then there's other times where it's, um, you know, you know I, I approach my own self like that. And th- there's no one antidote for it. There's, it's all different. It's all different. Sometimes you do need to give yourself some love and some compassion. Sometimes you just need to lighten up and laugh. Like, and and when you when you develop that relationship with your thoughts, you, you start to get good at knowing what you need in that moment and you don't have to rely on somebody else, but it's good. I'm, I'm, I'm learning now to, um, to just trust people as well. Like get, like, don't be afraid to be, you know, vulnerable in front of people, you know, that you're not going to have your shit together. And that's tough. Why? Because when you feel uncomfortable with certain sensations to be around people, if my head started spinning now, it'd be, it'd be uncomfortable. But there's the belief you know like you you have to believe that this person you're around or this situation that it's it's good nobody's out to get you
2: it's tough it, yeah it is and it's, i i often have to say to Audrey like please try not to take it personally it's like mm. an automatic default reaction that yeah. my that i my particular situation goes for is when i'm when i'm not feeling great like can tend to see everything as an attack yeah, and yeah. I tend to, even the most benign com- comment yeah. or, or action or look or glance, I will see it as an attack and that's how my brain filters it Right. And unfortunately what happens is then I get flooded and I'm unable to yeah. then discern it I, I and... can
1: completely relate because when, when my temper was out of control, that's literally how I operated all the time, that's what I was saying, I think it's like it's shifted because I didn't actually really learn how to deal with my emotions I learned how to get to suppress them and get rid of it. Uh-huh. Like, no, you shouldn't. Like, I, I re- remember getting into a um, a massive argument with my ex at the time and I I, I wear my heart on my sleeve and passive-aggressive, <laughs> you know, and coldness, it, it really, like, it gets in there. And um, it, we're just going and going and going and, and temper. I just saw black, you know, and I put my fist through um, three uh, gl- um, g- glasses that were on the bedside table, and my hand through it, and I put my f- fist through the window and shattered the window, and blood was pissing out everywhere. And I've still got the scar today, and, it's, and it, it nicked the nerves of my pick hand where I hold my pick, and still, and that was that was the moment that I went. Okay, this is a problem, and I I need to get rid of it because now I can't feel well. Not now, but back then I couldn't feel my pick. You know that could just end my career as a as an artist. For what you know, and um, but no, I don't. I never really learnt how to to deal, have that relationship with my emotions, and and to question the beliefs that fire those things up that happen in the split second in the background, and that's why. But I I learnt how to catch myself. Before it happened, but that's not good enough. Sometimes it's just not good enough, and that's why I reckon a, a, a lot of that fire then turned into anxiety because it's a different form of resistance to what is, and, and anxiety is is when it turns on yourself. When well, that energy is in there, and it's it's,
2: en- it's in there, yeah. It's know, brutal. <clears> that's <throat> going to trying to get itself out, yeah, in some way. You mentioned before that you're now more in tune with your instrument than you, you say mm. you've ever yeah. been. Um, so, what what do you feel will come? of that, what's the next? Because it seems to me like you, I mean, you're here today and I'm very grateful I didn't realise it was your first sit-down chat yeah, um, man. since it all went down. It, it feels to me that you have a lot to give mm. by sharing your story and being open, whether that is through music or through just speaking or what what do you feel is ahead of you?
1: Um, yeah, it's funny you should say that because music for me I suppose maybe because it's been based around the guitar, has been just about expressing myself through my guitar, right? And um, and then Nat Cole and the Kings, I I just wanted to write music that I loved to play and that was fun for my band. But these days, I'm writing music um, that's a little more that has a little more purpose in terms of what I want to say, and also what I actually want to sing. Almost like it's a therapy for, for me, and and. Where that was consolidated was I remember reading a um, an article with Bruce um, Bruce Springsteen, Rolling Stone, and and also his book, which is fantastic. And um, I read I was reading, going, "Wow, that's interesting." He experiences depression and emotional struggles when he's not on stage. I experience them when I'm you know around a tour. That's why is that like that for me? Like you know. And then I worked out when through reading his book that his songs are versions of, you know, stories of him, his life, the people around him. It's therapeutic for him to play those songs. He has that. So as long as you're on stage playing something that is not for show because I never played, like I never sold out or anything like that, but is not aligned with what's in here. Then it's always going to feel like a bit of an, an effort that you've got to be more than what you are in that moment to perform, and um, and that was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I, it's it's not about the vision of it's it's about what I want to say, and it's funny she's mentioned speaking because um, Daryl Summers mentioned that to me last year, um, um, encouraging me to get into that because I I, it, I, I do have things I want to say. That sounds terrifying, though. You've, you've obviously just the idea of getting up on stage without a guitar and talking, wow. <laughs> but, you know, like anything, else it's a process. Oh, Nathan, you start, um, you start with five people. Mm.
2: Start with five people. You don't have to go straight to the Jimmy Barnes soul deep. <laughs> start with five people. Yeah. And, I mean, even this a podcast caboodle. I hope will, I mean, you just wait. You see what the people say when they hear what you've said today. All right, people will be so encouraged by what you've spoken about because yeah. not everyone has stood on stage next to Michael Jackson when he has a fit and falls over. Yeah, yeah. But everyone certainly felt a version of the emotions you've spoken about today. That's right,
1: and 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 funny you should say that because that's the, that was the motivation for me starting the blog last year was it. I knew like I wasn't ready to perform and, but I just wanted to. I just had things to say and, and I've always liked writing and I'm not a writer. Um, but it was my brother who's, who read something that I'd written just, you know, just to say, hey, what do you think of this? And he's like, dude, people will be able to relate to that. Like they'll mm. enjoy that. And so I've been writing these things that I put out every week. And, yeah, that's a step for me. And and I'm just surprised at how many people have chimed in and gone, dude, you you, it's like I'm reading my own story right now to do with whether it's struggles or victories or whatever. It's been a really awesome way to connect to people. And that seems to be the theme throughout, whether it's through music, the blog, whatever, is just is just having a, a channel of expression and connecting, I think which is what this is about, right? Yeah, what you absolutely, do. absolutely. Yeah.
2: But I, I really feel that you'll have, you've got an opportunity to connect with a lot of people and mm. you never know by you speaking, you never know who is on the side of the road yeah. pulled over because they're having a... Yeah freak out and all their body can do is shut down and sleep. Yeah, yeah. You never know who might hear what you have to say, like what exactly you needed to hear then instead of sp- and sparing you a few more yeah, years of yeah,
1: pain. Yeah, absolutely. And right? and and that is was part of the purpose for the blog is because like I found it difficult to find industry-specific stories and advice on these matters mm. in music. It's getting better. Yeah, um, Australia, like, I know the uh, – music
2: cares in the states. Yeah. They helped out. Uh, they they're very good as yeah. far as helping I uh, like the the guy who was the fourth bass player for the Commodores who's now yeah, yeah. you know doing it really really tough. Yeah. They they go out of their way to help yeah. help men and women well, like I, that. Yeah.
1: And when I when I hear it literally can be one sentence that sparks like an epiphany that makes your whole world shift mm. into a better place. And it's so powerful and there are a million how to's out there but when when i was at my low point i really wanted to hear stories of people that were in my position mm. particularly in music because i was questioning things like is this a sign that i don't like music anymore oh, is yeah. this am i done like how am i ever going to get back on stage again to read a story of somebody where when they hit low and the process and what they went mm. through to get themselves back there then i mean that's half the Half the battle for me was going. Am I going the right way? Because it felt like because I had nobody around me that experienced it like that, which I probably did. Nobody just says anything, but I just didn't know whether I was on a path that was going to take me to mm. a good place or a or a bad uh, place, and it's fucking scary. Mate,
2: you're absolutely right. When yeah. I first when I first stopped drinking, I, I was lucky in that I found a group of people who had similar stories. Yeah, and and That's that special was what I believe you're, you're seeking and and what you are hoping to give. Yeah. To be able to give something that you weren't able to find is yeah. an incredible gift ah, to yeah. to people. Thanks. And and it might not just be people who have, you know, had a similar path to you. It's, it could, you know, it, it could be anyone, but there's something about the way that you tell your story that resonates it. I mean, there's, you know, as well as I do that, you know, I don't know, I'm going to assume that there probably would have been people who tried to help you as you were, you yeah. know, falling down this, this hill but yeah. you just weren't able to hear it yeah
1: that and and also um and many people just don't know how as yeah. well as well so the the education is important and i think you know, i wonder sometimes whether when you get a cold everybody knows what happens when you get a cold right and you can and and let's say you chop your finger off or whatever i mean like we know what happens when we physically get hurt and we you know cuz it's talked about it's just it just mm. and you have this voice that you know you're going to be okay right but with the mental thing it's like to have to see somebody go through it and come out just like it is a cold <laughs> that's crap just to know that it's okay and that this this is all normal and it's all part of the process and all that i reckon that's that's such an important thing yeah, not, when,
2: yeah. when I was in the darkest, I, I, I just couldn't believe that it could ever feel better.
1: Yeah, me neither. Uh, to think that I could uh, perform again, it, I could understand, I know this, this sounds dark, but when those doctors said there's nothing wrong, everything is great, and I was like, I felt trapped. I'm going to be like this forever. Oh, man. And I said to Amy, like, like I don't want to live like this. I can't live like this. And in that split second, not that I I... Ever thought about it, I could at least understand how people can be driven to to that it just and that in itself the fact that I could even understand it freaked me out yeah and and in that moment it was it was just like this this angel I made a call to somebody whos you know I was suggested two three years ago, and she was a clinical nutritionist, and literally like an angel, she looked at my bloods and went oh, Darling don't worry you'll be okay there's so there's there's your body is not working for you right now wow. we're gonna we're gonna sort this out. it's completely normal and and just her saying that was just warmed up my heart, the blackness just dissolved a little bit more, and yeah, it's amazing, you know. And, you, and, it's, and it is up to all of us who have been through it. I don't have the answers. I'm still going through my shit. I, I have goals and they scare the shit out of me. But um, it's when you learn something and it works for you, it's part of our responsibility, I reckon, to just, just share it, yeah. whether it's through a blog or talking about it, whatever, because half the, half the problem is the fact that when I go and work at a studio or whatever, I think that I'm the only one that, you know, deals with this negativity in my head i don't anymore because I know a lot of them are just putting on a brave face yeah. or self medicating or yeah. whatever you know just fucking life <laughs> <laughs>
2: but it sounds like it sounds like I mean, and you know for me it was a is a big big turning point in me feeling better. It sounds like you are lucky to have someone fantastic that you're married to, yeah, that is there to support you, and you've got absolutely you've got my old doctor used to say you've got to have um something to live for yeah um something and some someone to live for and something meaningful to do yeah so it sounds like you've got someone to live for in your yeah in in your wife and kids yeah um something meaningful to do in the music you're making yeah yeah so it sounds like you've got those absolutely
1: and from from that you you um uh, i remember hearing the dalai lama say um that it's not our birthright to be happy and, like, it's something we need to cultivate, you know, and that's that's what I spend my days, you know, just um, working on my habits and my beliefs and internally. And and um, I've kind of got this theory that why is it that a lot of my friends go through this stuff when they're in their late 20s, early 30s? And you know, the answer that I can come up with, it's like I wonder whether that's just enough time to have experiences where you've fallen straight flat on your face. <laughs> yeah. So there's not really much of an opportunity when you're younger. You go through little things and your parents are there to kind of, mm. you know, or if you've, you've got support around you to just kind of get you, you know, back there and you have a faith in the people around you and you don't really need to have too much faith in yourself until later when you're you're grown up and you're... And, yeah and then they, you just keep falling flat on your face and it just builds up and all of a sudden you find wake up one day and you've got a negative mind and you've, and you' and you're pessimistic and you're scared and all this stuff it didn't happen overnight for me. I know when I look back at it 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 yeah. happened
2: and that's the and that's the interesting thing to to certainly remind people who might be just starting it you didn't get this way overnight, no, and you're not going to come out of it overnight, no, but just as long as you keep making those incremental decisions. In that in the healthy direction, that yeah. one day it's going to feel better,
1: and it'll sustain. I reckon. Yeah, you know, like you, it'll it'll sustain, and it, and it's not like you're going to be uh, um, like if you're dedicated and you want to work on yourself. Um, there's a there's a million rewards along the way, even if you're not in a good place. Like I can look back at the last four years, and as as hard as what it has been, I felt like. More connected to myself and life, and when I experience waves of happiness and excitement or whatever, I mean, I'm like I'm on cloud nine. It's amazing, and and it's a different type of happiness. It's not like a, a it's not like a um, a rush, and it's not based on it's not always well. It's, it, sometimes it is, but it's not based on um, circumstance either. I could be sitting in traffic and just feel this fuck cool. <laughs> i just feel this wave of like yeah everything's everything's good but i'm in traffic <laughs> it doesn't matter whatever
2: just i'm happy to hear it man
1: yeah it's a process huh
2: thanks so much for coming around
1: mate great chat all yeah, good thank you
2: no worries i'm gonna take your photo real quick okay yep do it thank you that was Nathan Cavalleri. You can follow him on Instagram, Nathan underscore Cavalieri, C-A-V-A-L-E-R-I, or read his very interesting blog at NathanCavallari.com. Thanks again to everyone at Patreon who supported the show this week. Um, thank you. Couldn't make the show without you. Patreon.com slash Osher if you feel like this show brings you some value and you feel like, yeah, I could kick, kick a couple of bucks their way. You know, you don't have to give anything. You can give me one buck one time. You, or you can pledge five bucks a month. Whatever you want to do. It's up to you. Uh, thanks very much for all the emails that came through this week. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Thank you so much. Uh, the only thing I'm going to say now is just, you know, call your mum. Call your mum and say thanks. Figure it out. If there's any weirdness, figure it out. Do it. You got to do it. If you can't, and I understand that some of you have already been through what I've been through in the last few weeks, that's okay. Find a mum that you know and make her feel valuable. Make her feel valued. you got to do it. Make you feel good too. It's a bit selfish, but it'll make you feel good to do it. So um, I'm going to go get on my bicycle now. After I drink this cup of tea, And I'm going to have the night with my wife. And I hope whatever you're doing today is all right. And until I talk to you next week, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.